Turn with me to the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 28 and verses 16 through 20 will be our passage today as we conclude our series we've called Disciple, where we are seeking to define and explain what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we're going to conclude this series today in one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture on discipleship. Some of you probably thought, were we ever going to get here? Shouldn't we have started in Matthew chapter 28? But we're going to end in Matthew 28 in this passage. And I think it's safe to assume that most of us who have spent any time in the church, maybe it's growing up in the church, visiting the church, have at least heard this passage at some point in the life of the church. Uh, We've heard this preached. Maybe we've seen it on the back wall uh, across a map. Uh, with some missionaries, uh, missionary cards next to it, uh, with those little yarn pieces that are stuck to little pins and things like that. Uh, You've seen or at least heard this verse. Nevertheless, these verses are often uh, forgotten. They're just plastered on the wall. Uh, But this morning, we'll see how indispensable they are to understanding what it means to be a disciple and the mission of Christ that he gives to his disciples. So please follow along as I begin reading from Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is God's word. May we believe it and see him exalted in it this morning. Let's go to him in prayer with those requests. Father, we want to believe you in your word this morning. We know that our hearts are prone to wander, Uh, And we start to believe what we're speaking into our own lives about the importance of your word and and what is important, what's not, what fits us as a human being and our personalities and what doesn't. And may that all be set aside and may we just believe what you say about your, your mission for your disciples. So may we believe it and may we see you exalted in it this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that we as your people can sit underneath the authority of your word. Uh, It will change our hearts as we open our hearts to hear you in it. In your name, amen. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, or so the old saying goes, though some of us might argue against that saying, especially those of us who have children who like to play that game copycat uh, or just the repeat game. That starts off a lot of fun, uh, when, they, when your little infant starts to repeat after you. But by grades 1, ages 4 and 5, somewhere in there, when they continue to repeat every single word, and they just continue to do that over and over again, Sammy, I know you've done that. Uh, when they do it over and over again, the cuteness begins to wear off a little bit. If you ever experience the joy of that moment, when your child is repeating after and over, you would probably argue that not that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but that imitation is the sincerest form of irritation uh, in that moment. 
But if we're all honest with ourselves, when it gets right down to it, we like the fact that someone wants to imitate us. Especially if that person is closer to being our age and our peer. We might still be a, a little annoyed, but we're generally flattered when our friend wants the same vehicle as us or jumps on the Golden State Warriors bandwagon uh, with us. Right, guys? Uh, or maybe it's when that lady buys the same outfit or starts decorating just like you. Right, ladies? I mean, in that fact, Chip and Joe are the <laughs> most flattered couple in the world. We can all be modest, but in the end, we all really like it when someone imitates us, when someone wants to be like us. Well, here in Matthew 28, as Jesus is concluding his time on earth, he gives his followers a rather straightforward command. Make disciples. And as we've already seen throughout the series so far, in the various passages of scripture that we've seen in the Gospels, this call to make disciples comes on the heel of his call for us first to be disciples. So from the very first days of Jesus' earthly ministry, he set out to gather around himself followers or disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, immediately after having faced temptation in the wilderness from Satan, while he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walks up to Peter and Andrew and says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Mark records that same interaction in chapter 1, verse 17. Luke in chapter 5, 10, John in chapter 1 and verse 35. And it's this call to be disciples that when we then see carried out throughout the remainder of each of the Gospels. And so when we come now to the end of Matthew, again having him started in chapter 4 with follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When we end here in Matthew 28, the term disciple is not at all new to us, but if we're honest, the call to make disciples might seem somewhat novel. We might even ask ourselves, is this what Jesus has just to add before he goes? Is this his parting words? Well, the answer is no. In fact, this call to make disciples, if it seems rather new, we have to take another look at Matthew 4 because Matthew 4 says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To be a disciple always means to make disciples. In other words, to be a disciple is to call others to imitate you, to follow Jesus as you are following him, to, as we've studied so far, to learn from Jesus as you are learning from Jesus, to do what Jesus says as you do what Jesus says. So being a disciple means being a multiplier. It means multiplying yourself, letting others imitate you as you follow Christ. Now, not all of us like that term, multiply, because we're not math accounting nerds. Now, that's, that's a term of endearment for all you accounting math people that love that. I, I'm actually somewhat of a math nerd. Uh, I like math here and there. But for those of us who don't remember way back in high school and junior high, the word multiply, what that all means, here's Webster's Dictionary for you. Obtain from another that contains the first number a specific number of times. Everybody got that? I read that this week and I was like, whoa, what? Whoa. Obtain from another that contains the first number a, specific, a specified number of times. Yeah, I don't get it. 
So for us simple folks, it's to increase in number by reproducing. Or in other words, to make more. You see, to multiply yourself as a disciple means to make more disciples that look like you as you look like Jesus, to make imitators. Now again, in our modesty and even humility, we might not want others to imitate us, yet this is what Jesus calls for here in these verses. This is what makes a true disciple. A true disciple multiplies themselves by the power of and presence of Jesus. That is the big idea this morning here in these verses. A true disciple multiplies themselves by the power and presence of Jesus. Paul captures the essence of this call in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 when he writes to the church in Corinth, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The problem, however, is that in our day of assembly lines, in our days of 12-step programs, we think that making disciples has more to do with an incredible, incredibly persuasive sales pitch or a series of measures in order for us to place a CFC-approved stamp on someone's hiney. They're approved. They're now a disciple. Only then do we feel like we finally obeyed the Great Commission. They've now finally measured up to our standards, and so now we have a trophy case disciple here. But when Jesus, in these verses, presents these words before he leaves, it's not all that simple and neat. It's not a 12-step program. It's not certain measures. It's not trying to take them through 12 weeks of a little book, and now they are approved as a disciple. He doesn't give us a man-made program to produce cookie-cutter Christians, nor does he give us a simple set of metrics for what someone must believe and how they should live before they can be dubbed a disciple. Rather, in what Pastor John MacArthur refers to as the climax and major focal point, not only in this gospel, but in the entire New Testament, Jesus here is reminding us and his disciples of his plan, or sorry, first his power, his plan, and his presence. And herein lies our mission as a church. His power available to us, his plan for us as his disciples, and his presence with us as his followers. And so as we receive his words this morning in this passage, I believe God wants to awaken our hearts, both individually and corporately as a church, with a renewed zeal to join Jesus on his mission of gathering disciples in our city and among all nations. And so with that in mind, we begin this morning in verse 18 by being reminded of Christ's power. In verse 16, Matthew informs us that these are the final words from Jesus here on earth. And they're being said to the 11 disciples that are gathered in Galilee on the mountain where Jesus had told them to meet. Matthew notes that there are only 11 disciples at this point, because if you remember, back in chapter 27, He informed us that Judas had not only left Jesus' side, but had hung himself in response to betraying innocent blood, to betraying Jesus. So at this point, there's only 11. And as Jesus comes to them, we see a a rather mixed response from his followers. Matthew records that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And once again, as we've seen throughout the Gospels, as we've gone through this study, 
And if you're familiar with the Gospels, we see the fragility and confusion that seems to plague these disciples all throughout. At some point, these men are all in with Jesus. While at other times, they stand back in hesitation. They're uncertain about what's happening, what Jesus is saying. Jesus, however, without his followers saying a single word, knows their doubts. He knows their confusion and also their amazement. For remember, just a few days earlier, they had seen him hanging on that cross. After being beaten and scourged, they have seen him and heard his cries of agony as he took his final breath. They knew Jesus was dead. But now, he's standing right in front of them. And he's speaking to them. So notice his words are filled both with assurance and strength. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Knowing that some of his followers are still doubting if he was actually who he had said he was, Jesus reminds them that he is exactly who he said he is. He is the Son of God and Son of Man. He is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is fully God and fully man. The claim that Jesus asserts here reveals that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, which said of the Son of Man, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And see, Jesus assures his followers that he is this one that Daniel had been talking about, and he has all authority. He is the king, and he is on his throne. Well, certainly this didn't look like the case a few days earlier, did it? It looked like Jesus was completely defeated. And since most of his disciples expected Jesus to flex his power and authority and overthrow the Romans, what they saw on the cross would have created not only doubt, but most likely a sense of despair in that. But this was all in the sovereign plan of God. For as Paul explains in the passage we read this morning, for assurance of grace, therefore, that is because of Christ's humility, because of his obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus proclaims here, I have all authority. I am exalted over all. My power is like none other. And so he reminds his disciples and he reminds us that he's in charge. He's the point. He doesn't do this only to assure them, but to strengthen them for what he is about to say next. You see, the authority and power of Jesus not only gives us hope for ourselves and our own faith in him, but it also gives us hope for the mission he calls to. And so Jesus moves from reminding his disciples of his power to reminding them of here's my plan. Here's the mission in verses 19 through 20. Now it's, it's always more motivating when someone tells you to do something after they've given you all the means to do it, isn't it? And so at work, when your boss says, all right, here's the project that you're to accomplish and get done before next week. 
and then tells you to go do it, there might be this sense of, oh, that's a lot. I mean, this is a small time frame for me to do it. You're motivated because it's your job. You've got to do it. But when he says, here's everything you need to get the project done, here's all the manpower you need behind it, the money you need is all there, the materials you need, everything, the deadline to that project becomes a little bit more hopeful. You have what you need to get her done. And so you go out to do that. Having then just assured his disciples of his power, that's what Jesus does here. He spells out what their mission is. He says, I've got everything under control. I have all authority over heaven and earth. Now go, therefore, or we could read, because I have all authority, because of my power, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the mission God has for his followers. As I said earlier, this isn't new to Jesus' disciples here. This is what they have heard from that very first call in Matthew chapter 4 to follow him and he would make them fishers of men. Following him means becoming disciple makers. And since Christ has all authority, he can command this of us. He can command this of his followers. And so he does. You see what Jesus says here, what has been commonly known as the Great Commission, is not meant for us to scrutinize and critique, to sit back and say, hmm, what does he mean by go? What does he mean by make disciples, baptize, teach? It's not meant to be considered even as optional. No, you know what, I'll leave that up to those disciples that are those kind of disciples, uh, those evangelistic kind of disciples, the ones that don't have a problem talking with someone else. No, this is a command that we're to obey, we're to do. Because he has all authority, he can command us as his people to make disciples. And so, in fact, there's only one imperative in these verses. One verb for all you grammar lovers in this sentence. That is this word, to make disciples. It's the primary command in this verse. But, as you notice in verses 19 to 20, there's some other subordinating participles. Again, nobody knows what that means. Look it up later. Those are go, baptize, and teach. But really only one command here. Make disciples. One commentator notes, the imperative here explains the central thrust of this commission, while the participles describe aspects of the process. So here's the main thrust, make disciples. Here's how the process goes about. These subordinate participles take on an imperative force. And so it characterizes this as a mandatory process of making disciples. In other words, Jesus' plan, his mission for his disciples, is rather simple and straightforward. Make others disciples. Make imitators. Be a multiplier. Christ has one primary task for his followers. One task for his church, and that is to make disciples, to multiply. And so once we have that command clearly established, once we know the purpose, the mission is to make disciples, he explains how that happens. It happens by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. But what does that mean? So we do want to ask ourselves, what does this mean? I know I'm going to do it. How do I go out and do that? First notice 
that there's movement and action present in these three participles. Making disciples takes initiative on our part. We've seen that throughout this study so far. Doing the word takes initiative. Following takes initiative. Learning takes initiative. Being a servant takes initiative. Being a builder takes our initiative. It's almost like Jesus actually wants us to do something. Isn't it? He wants us to get moving. He wants his followers to move forward in action. What we have here, David Platt writes, is not a comfortable call inviting most Christians to come, be baptized, and sit in one location. Yet, as we know, that is exactly what we're tempted to turn our mission into. If we're not careful, this is what our Christianity will consist of, being baptized and sitting in one location. We may come to a worship service, participate in the life of the church, serve in the church, give regularly, all the while neglecting to go and make disciples. The church is filled, Platt continues, with people who have been Christians for 5, 10, 15, or even 50 years who have never led someone outside of their family to be a reproducing disciple. We have then missed our mission. You see, the sad reality is that far too many within the church come to sit and fail to go. But Dan, you might ask, don't we believe that God and his sovereignty and he will bring those uh, into his family? Don't we believe God will draw to himself those he has elected to know and believe in him? Absolutely. We believe what Christ says in John chapter 10, that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We also believe what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace we have been saved through faith, which is the gift of God. So we believe what the Bible says about predestination and election, that salvation is all of God's sovereign grace. As the kids learned this past week in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, that God gives the growth. But we also believe what Jesus says here. We believe that we are to make disciples. We believe what Paul says in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have, have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so you see, the, the sovereignty of God and salvation is not at all in contradiction to the mission of God for his church to make disciples. In fact, they actually complement one another. God's sovereignty and salvation and his mission for his church complement each other. Believing Jesus has all authority, believing he has power over all things, even over the hearts of those wicked, deceitful enemies. That gives us hope. That when we go to preach the good news, the gospel, that he will take dead men and make them alive. And he has decided to use us in his great mission of gathering disciples. And so, because of that, because of God's sovereignty and salvation, his authority and power, 
to make dead men alive because of his mission that he gives us to go and to proclaim the gospel so that they might have someone to hear from. We don't just sit back and wait for followers to come. No, we stand up and go by his power. We go, therefore, and make disciples. Jonathan Dodson writes in his excellent book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, Jesus is the ground of our going. When Jesus sends, he sends us under his authority. And so we take the initiative and we move forward to make disciples by sharing the good news of Jesus. And as we do so, God will choose to give growth where he so chooses. Rebels will be made redeemed sons and daughters when Christ when God so chooses to make that happen. But we go faithfully and we proclaim the good news. And when he does give growth, we baptize, Jesus says. We baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We do so not just as the first step of obedience per se, but as an announcement of a changed identity in Christ. You see, what we have here from the lips of Jesus is Really, that baptism is all about making it known that you are a disciple of Jesus. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That you have repented of your sins, turned in faith to Christ. That you have crucified your flesh with him. You've been buried with him. You've also been raised to new life in him. And so you're now identifying yourself with him. And he is identifying himself with you. Baptism is really a naming ceremony where you're named with the Father, named with the Son and the Spirit. You've been given a changed identity through his grace. You are now a child of the Father, a servant like the Son. You are sent with the Spirit to give witness to the fact that you were once dead, but now you are alive in him. And see this changed identity, this new life in Jesus makes you then hungry for his word. So as Jesus continues, he says, so teach those who are hungry, who have this new identity, that yearn for the word, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. If you are now following Jesus, for he has called you to follow him, and you long to learn from him and do what he says, you want the teaching. You want to observe all that he has commanded. We have shared the gospel. Now we show the gospel through baptism. And now we saturate ourselves with the gospel. With the teaching that he has given us. So Jesus' plan is to make disciples who not only know what he has said and believe it. But also live by it. Teach them to observe. To live. To to line up with everything that I have commanded you. Disciples aren't those who just hear his word, but disciples who obey his word. As we saw several weeks ago, disciples who are doers, who then multiply themselves among all nations. So if we jump back up, the beginning of verse 19, I skipped over that phrase of all nations, and I skipped over that on purpose. Because once we know the mission, how it happens by going, by baptizing, by teaching, now we see the extent of this command. 
Who is this for? Who do we go to? Who do we baptize? Who do we teach? All nations. That means the mission of our church, our, our mission as disciples individually, is both right in front of us and also far beyond us. We're to go, we're to baptize, we're to teach overseas, but also across the street. This is the who of God's mission. All people. Remember, this has been God's mission from day one. If we were to turn back to Genesis chapter 12, in the covenant to Abram, we have this promise. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is the blessing who all families of the earth shall be blessed in. God's mission that has as its aim all tribes, all tongues, all nations, and all people. So because he has authority over all of heaven, over all of earth, all nations, tongues, tribes, people, he can tell us to go and make disciples. And as we go, we see him do the work of drawing disciples, gathering disciples to himself. And so we baptize them, putting, putting our, uh, helping them understand that their identity has been changed, and then we teach them. We teach them to observe all. And so the question at this point is, are you joining God in his mission of gathering disciples? Most of the time, when we read these verses, there's this sense of, Maybe guilt that happens at some point as we hear these verses. That we aren't doing this enough. That we should do it more. And I believe that that is a good thing in our hearts. That is conviction in our hearts. Even as I prepared for this, God was convicting me. Am I making disciples? Am I going to my neighbors? To my city? Are we fulfilling the role, our role in his plan as a multiplier? It's good to feel that, but notice that Jesus doesn't just stop with the power and his command, but he tells us something in the end. He reminds his disciples at the end of verse 20. He says, I'm with you. So go. It might be overwhelming. You might feel a little guilt that you're not doing this, but remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So just in case we're a little overwhelmed, by what we, he's just laid out for us, he tells us he'll be with us. Now you and I might not feel the weight of this statement being some 2,000 years removed from this mountaintop farewell speech. But because of the uncertainty and confusion swirling in their thoughts and hearts from the events of the past days, the disciples here would have likely sighed a collective sigh of relief with these words. Oh, good, he's going to be with us. He's going to be with us always. Yet, as both Mark and Luke record in their accounts of the Savior's last words, the disciples, as they're looking on, hearing these words, all of a sudden Jesus is lifted up. A cloud takes him out of their sight. And you can just imagine them standing there. Uh, what just happened? Where, where did he go? I, I mean, you just said, I'm with you always, and now, gone. I'm not sure that's how it works. 
What's going on here? Luke continues his account in Acts chapter 1, so flip over there to Acts 1, by noting at this point, two men stand by them with white robes and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Again, at this point, I imagine somebody like Peter saying something in that moment. You know, Peter's that guy who always sticks his foot in his mouth. So he says something like, he starts to get a smart aleck response out. <laughs> I mean, we're standing here because he just said he was going to be with us and now he's gone. But the angels continue and say, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Luke continues his account and notes that the disciples then begin to remember what Jesus had told them previously. Namely, that he would send a helper. And as we read in Acts 2, that's exactly what happens. So in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, look down, this is what Luke records. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Again, these are Jesus' followers who heard him say, I'll be with you always, then see him gone. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What Jesus had promised his disciples comes true. What he promised back in John 15, 16, and 17, that the helper would come, that it would help bear witness about Jesus, that the disciples here are they're given the Spirit to give witness about Jesus. They're empowered by the Spirit. And so that's why we read at the end of Acts 2, in verses 37 through 41, now when they heard this, that is the people that the disciples spoke to, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, we hear all nations, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, we hear the authority and power of Jesus. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so we see what happens when Christ's power and his plan go to work with his presence. Disciples are multiplied. The mission is carried out by these same doubting men who watch as Christ left the earth. But notice that they're no longer confused and uncertain. They are now bold and fearless. Jesus had not left them alone. He is with them and in them by his spirit, empowering them as they join him in his mission of gathering disciples. And you see, that same truth is true for us. Jesus does not leave us on our own to carry out his plan. Jesus goes with us. He keeps his promise. He empowers us by his spirit to carry out his mission. And so if we're reading here at the end of Matthew 28, and we're feeling a little guilty for not being part of this great plan like we should. We should be encouraged at the end that he's going to go with us. He's going to empower us to do that. So even though we might stutter a little bit, like we'll learn about Moses in, in Exodus, while we might not talk well enough for our friends and coworkers, our our neighbors, he goes 
with us. He will be with us to the end of the age. His power goes with us as we follow his plan to make disciples, and he goes with us in his presence by his Spirit. Over the past nine weeks, we have sought to define and explain what it means to be a true disciple of Christ, a term that is often neglected, forgotten within the church. But what is even more tragic is that this term itself is not the only thing that's neglected. For many within the church completely fail to live out what it actually means to be a disciple. How about us? How about you? Are you a disciple in name only, but not in reality? Are you a multiplier? Are you making disciples? A true disciple multiplies themselves by the power and presence of Jesus. So as we close this sermon series, I want to encourage us all to apply this specific passage and this teaching that we've gone through for the last nine weeks in two specific ways. First, by initiating disciple-making relationships. Taking the initiative, as we've heard over and over again, to go, move forward. Ask God to give you eyes to see those in your current relationships who you can start the process of making a disciple. You can say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Ask God to give you eyes. And then ask God to bring new relationships where you might begin to make disciples. Maybe it's that waitress that you see each week when you go to that restaurant. Maybe it's the barista that you see every single day when you get that coffee. Maybe it's the fellow gym member that is there that you see and you say hey to, you talk about the weather. Ask God to bring new relationships where you can initiate a disciple-making, a multiplying, an imitator-like relationship with them. So initiate and then invest your time and effort in making disciples. Set specific time when you will move forward toward others in order to make disciples. Again, not just sitting back saying, oh, they'll come to me at some time, but take specific time and give concerted effort to that time to make disciples. Don't just give your leftover efforts and time. Invest your time and effort in making disciples. So initiate and invest. David Platt writes, we live in a world of sin. We live in a world of rebellion, suffering, and pain. A world where over 3 billion people live on less than $2 a day. And a billion of those people live in desperate poverty. Hundreds of millions are starving and dying of preventable diseases. Yet the spiritual condition of the world is even far worse. Billions of people across the world are engrossed in false religion. Approximately 2 billion of them have never even had a chance to hear the gospel. According to scripture, they are all on a road that leads to an eternal hell. Yet as believers, we know that Jesus is Lord and that he has died on the cross for our sins and has risen from the grave. The Spirit of God has opened our hearts to see and to believe. He has saved us to know God and to enjoy him. Very soon we will be with him forever in heaven. But while we're here, God has given us his Spirit for one purpose. We have been charged with reaching the world with the gospel. So by his power and with his presence, we carry out his plan for his glory and for the joy of all people.
May we be true disciples who multiply ourselves by the power and presence of Jesus. And so, Father, that is our prayer. That's my prayer for us as a church. That as we've studied this over the last nine weeks, we've looked at all of these attributes of a disciple. It's not just something now that we close up and set on the shelf and say, yep, we're disciples. To God, it would be something that we are active about. That we follow you, we learn from you, we do what you say, we repent when we need to, we, we love others, we serve them, we build into them, and then we just go out and we start bringing somebody up along who would also follow you, learn from you, do what you say. We would multiply ourselves for your glory and for their joy and satisfaction in you. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning who has not yet turned in faith to you, that they would not identify themselves as a disciple, that they would do so today, that they would turn in faith. Maybe they don't know what it all entails, but they would turn in faith and say, God, I'm all in. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to do what you say. And God, that uh, they would repent of their sins and they would put their faith in your son and his finished work. If there's someone here that has done that even just recently or any of our youth that said, I want to make that known. God, would you stir in their hearts a desire to, to be baptized, to announce that uh, to the world, starting here with our church, announcing that I am changed. I was once dead, but I'm now alive because of the grace of God. And so God, do that work in our heart. Do the work of maturing us as a body so that we are multipliers, that we would make disciples, we would go into all the world, whether it's here in Sun Prairie or sending across the globe, may we be what you have called us to be. In your name, amen.